If you were given an assignment to make a list of all the ethnicities or races of people vying for control of the American West in the 19th century, what groups would you include? Many would get the obvious and prevalent groups, whites of various Euro-American heritages, a multitude of indigenous peoples, blacks, Spanish and Mexicans, Chinese, and so forth. But missing in most people's lists are a set of historically significant and a demographically large group, mixed descent families. Welcome to Writing Westward. I'm your host, Brennan Rensink, and I'm thrilled that for this, our 50th episode, if you can believe it, we will walk through a continental retelling of American West history, but through the lens of mixed descent peoples, with the award-winning historian Anne F. Hyde, and her new book, Born of Lakes and Plains, Mixed Descent Peoples and the Making of the American West. Thanks for listening. For new listeners, allow me to take a moment to explain a bit about writing westward and myself. Each episode features a conversation with people writing about the North American West. Historians, journalists, novelists, poets, scientists, sociologists, and others. By showcasing their work, I hope to spark your curiosity to think more deeply about the region, its lands and environments, and the histories and experiences of the peoples who call it home. If a writer or topic intrigues you, you can find links to their work in the show notes or at writingwestward.org. And if you have a moment, please do subscribe, share links with friends, leave us a review or rating on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you're using to listen, follow us on Facebook and Twitter, and send in some feedback. Writing Westward is supported by the Charles Red Center for Western Studies at Brigham Young University, where I, Brendan Rensink, serve as Associate Director and an Associate Professor of History. For better or worse, this is a one-man operation with me playing role of host, producer, sound engineer, publicist, and everything else, all tasks for which I have no training. But I am passionate about the North American West, so this difficult work is well worth the excuse to read more books and talk to interesting people. At the end of each episode, I'll include a little bit more information about me and my scholarship and about the Red Center, our public programming and projects and funding opportunities that you could apply for. With that, let me introduce a little bit more about today's guest and why we're talking to them. Anne Hyde is professor of history at the University of Oklahoma and editor-in-chief of the Western Historical Quarterly. Her most recent book that we talk about today, Born of Lakes and Plains, Mixed Descent Peoples and the Making of the American West, was published by W.W. W. Norton in 2022. In reverse chronology, some of her other notable publications include Empires, Nations, and Families, A New History of the North American West, 1800-1860, published by the University of Nebraska Press in 2012, which won the Bancroft Prize and was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize. Two different two-volume primary document readers co-authored with William Deverell, The West in the History of the Nation, published by Bedford St. Martins in 2020, and Shaped by the West, A History of North America, published by the University of California Press in 2018, and An American Vision, Far Western Landscape and American Culture, 1820-1920, published by New York University Press in 1990, which won the W. Turrentine Jackson Award. She has many other publications to her name, accolades, awards, and distinguished leadership positions in various organizations. In Born of Lakes and Plains, Hyde takes a unique group of Western peoples, mixed-descent individuals and families, who regularly appear in Western history and are not completely unknown to historians, but who have often not been placed at center stage. Tracing these families across multiple generations and across the continent, Hyde makes a convincing case that they were not side players, but were indeed central to so many aspects of how Western history developed. Born of unions between white fur traders and indigenous women, and then multiple generations of subsequent offspring who in turn intermarried in various ways. These mixed descent peoples abridged cultures, made significant economic systems possible. And yet, as the decades wore on and American settler colonial development moved west, many of these populations struggled to find a secure footing in either of the worlds that they straddled especially as those important intermediary roles they had so successfully inhabited were eliminated. 
Hyde's book is a 10,000-foot macro view of centuries-long continental narratives, but never feels that way because she consistently tells those big stories through the intimate lives and experiences of these individuals. I was thus pleasantly surprised by the vibrant sense of humanity that this volume maintains while applying it to the big picture, enormous contexts. The later outcomes of mixed descent peoples in Native America and the West resonate with still ongoing struggles over indigenous identity, community belonging, and many social, cultural, and legal entanglements that those entail. The book is beautifully written. And Hyde, in my opinion, was a perfect guest to help us celebrate this, the 50th episode of Writing Westward. Hopefully, we will have many more to come. Thanks again for listening. Professor Anne F. Hyde, welcome to Writing Westward. Thank you. I am delighted to be here on a beautiful February morning. Uh, I'm especially grateful. Um, you're currently on sabbatical uh, researching at the Huntington, and I know that sabbatical time is precious because there's not as many distractions. So I apologize for this distraction and uh, express gratitude for you willing to take a few moments with us. I'm happy, happy to do it. I thought we could start with some kind of big picture items about how you came to this topic, uh, a little discussion about terminology and the overall significance of of this book and this this work. And then maybe we can go through some things chronologically and dive into some some key moments that might be interesting for listeners to think about um so tell us uh, for those well, for those familiar with your last book um this seemed like maybe a really natural outgrowth um but for those maybe not familiar explain to us how you came to this topic and why it grabbed you well i think for me the pu- the puzzle that really drives me with everything is how how race works and how that shifts over time so that's you know for me the central issue in the past because it's got such an obvious hold on the present so you know in this particular moment where we have millions of people using dna testing kits to figure out you know, who they are, and they're uncovering much more complex and mixed heritages um, than everyone thought of. So all the evidence of this intermarriage is just kind of out there. So, you know, understanding who lived in North America and what explains what's actually in our gene pool, I think, you know, and, and, and the stories we carry from our own families. So I think understanding this deeper story in the past is really important. Do you think it provides a, a counter narrative to kind of the like are, are there prevailing familiar narratives about the settlement of the West and the contest over the West that you're trying to provide a corrective for? I think I think the 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 notion that the West was some big empty space that a whole bunch of heroic pioneers came into all by themselves. I think that story's gone. Um, but but what how the West operated and understanding the deep significance of the fur trade. So, you know, when I started my career quite some time ago, I didn't imagine myself as a historian of the fur trade, but it it turns out to be key to everything. So understanding how business worked, understanding how, you know, cross border trade worked, and then how important all these intimate relationships were to the fur trade and then to business, et cetera. So I, I think th- that's why I thought it mattered. I think for a lot of people, uh, when they hear fur trade, it seems quaint. Oh, so there were some guys with big beards, you know, running around up in the mountains, trapping a few furs, kind of, they've gone you know far beyond kind of the reaches of European empires. And uh, it doesn't seem like necessarily that big of a deal can you give us a sense of how big of business uh, was the fur? And there's multiple kinds of fur trade that stretches over, you know, over a century. So there's some big generalizations, but why is this such a big deal that we should be paying attention to? Um, I think, you know, it is, it is gone in some ways. And it's, it seems like it has to do with like Davy Crockett hats or, you know, stuff like that. But it it was in North America, it was the biggest business and it was the you know biggest set of corporate enterprises from the 1600s until about 1850. So that's a very long time. 
Um, it was, you know, our, maybe I shouldn't put it quite that way. Let's say it, the Northern part of North America um, didn't have the same kind of resources that were immediately obvious. So fur was something that European investors could make money from, from the beginning, but it's, a big, big business, and it goes deep into Canada, the Great Lakes area, and, and really spreads everywhere. And farther south than I think people assume also. Yeah. People are trapping fur, uh, fur-bearing animals that we associate with northern climates pretty far south. Yeah, New Mexico, Arizona, Southern California. Beavers are unbelievably adaptable. Yeah, they're everywhere. Um, so... We shouldn't just pass over the fur trade as a small little thing. This drove North American settlement and investment. It was big multinational corporate businesses and contests. It was, we can't really overstate how big it was. And it was it was run by Native people for Native purposes. So this whole, you know, Indigenous world of you know, sophisticated hunting, uh, trapping practices, how you preserve fur, how you ship them, that all comes out of the native world. And, you know, so so this is where this book gets key because the only way to access all that native labor and expertise is through intimate family relationships. So if you're some European guy who shows up in Montreal or New York or wherever, um, you have to be invited to come with a native village down the river. So, you know, that's the only way you're going to make any money from all this. So that's that's kind of the heart of this intermarriage. And the only way that you show that you have skin in the game is to get married and have, have children. So both sides had something to gain through this intermarriage. The, these fur traders are gaining access to these native networks. But you write that uh, Native peoples entered into the fur trade for their own needs as well, um, but perhaps not fully aware of the scope and the size of what this enterprise would become and how profoundly it would upend you know, the, the continent in a way. Yes, and it's it starts off, and maybe it stays that way. Really, it's it's very it's very local. It's it's your village. It's the particular fur trading company, whether it's a Hudson's Bay company or the Northwest Company or you know whoever ends up showing up. But it's it's about these personal relationships. So a group of young white men develops a relationship with a particular village or a particular clan or a particular nation. Um, and eventually children come out of that. And these children are the heart of the fur trade too, because they can act as translators. Um, they have native expertise and they speak English or French. So in terms, again, in terms of expertise, that's really crucial to the business. So, so when I was doing the research for empires, nations, and families, I kept noticing that every single fort that I looked at for any reason, whether it was a trading fort, whether it was a military fort, whether, you know, all of these forts. And that's that's kind of how the West was set up in the 19th century were all these forts. And they're all run by mixed race families. I thought, well, huh, what's that all about? So really it was seeing all those folks living in all those forts. I feel like I needed to figure that out. And they've often, they've always been there in most historical treatments, you know, there's a lot of famous names and so-and-so and so-and-so, you know, was at this fort and, oh, they were, you know, a mixed race, mixed descent person. But, um, so they're there, but they seem to me to always be on the peripheries, whereas your work says, well, let's recenter this entire continental narrative around them. And suddenly we find out they weren't just on the peripheries or they didn't just happen to be at the forts. They're central to the whole thing. Uh, and and it's not just Métis peoples, you know, up in the Red River. There's mixed descent peoples. Um, I mean, you even head up into the Pacific Northwest uh, for a few moments. Uh, yeah, I mean, they're 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 everywhere the fur trade is. Yeah. So they're everywhere the Hudson's Bay Company is, or you know, any of these you know big corporate enterprises. 
Can you explain to us kind of the native world that these fur traders arrive in, in terms of existing traditions of intermarriage between, um, you know, different uh, uh, native peoples and groups? I guess the way to think about this is the way native through the whole process of conquest and maybe even before native people had built diplomatic and trade alliances kind of building family so you know the the word that anthropologists use is fictive kin so we're going to have familial kinds of relationships with this other village this other tribal nation and this will be the way that we'll protect ourselves in times of war or get resources that we can't have. So that's a, a familiar practice. The, the other way that that unfolds is, you know, less, uh, it's more violent, which is captivity. So in times of war, in times of stress, so particularly when that moment when European disease arrives, and there's, you know, a lot of loss of population, a lot of Native people, even before they understand that this is coming from, you know, white people or forts or missions or wherever, they they know they have a population problem. So they start, capt you know, capturing other people. And they, in particular, capture women and children as a way to rebuild tribes. And there's, I mean, the, the, there are famous examples um, from the Iroquois and other nations about how you integrate these captive people into tribal nation. So this is something that Native people have been doing. So reaching across, you know, culture, language, et cetera, to bring people into the tribe. So, so it's familiar to Native people. It solves some population problems, and now it becomes essential to this new business enterprise. Let's talk about terminology. So in your subtitle, you use the term mixed descent, which is maybe not the most uh, familiar for a lot of people. Um, in some of the historical documents, you see mixed race. You see the term half-breed quite a lot, which was often used pejoratively. Uh, you know, kind of as a slur. Um, uh, Métis often refers, uh, Métis is often used broadly, but should more properly just be used for the specific kind of Red River uh, culture. Um, can I walk us through uh, some of these terms and why you landed on mixed descent and, and maybe why that's important? It's complicated. And over the, over the time that I was actually writing the book, um, practice and sort of what felt comfortable to use as a term changed. So, you know, half-breed, as you point out, um, just has a taint of racism to it. it. It has, you know, it sounds like something that comes out of, you know, 19th century racial science or something. Eugenics or something. Yeah. yeah. So there's, so it has that taint. But if you use the word half-breed, it's very clear who you're talking about. If you use the term mixed race, it's not it's entirely clear who you're talking about. So I was really looking for a term that would be clear that we're talking about Native Americans, Indigenous people, and Europeans, and sometimes Africans, but that's the mix we're talking about. So I you know, was hoping that this would be clearer the, the other thing I liked about mixed descent is it's not so much about blood. It's just about you have this shared past and you're taking this different past and you're mixing it together. So you have, you know, this mixed descent. So I'm sure, you know, by the time I, you know, get tired of talking about this book, um, There'll be some, you know, new terms because this this is a struggle to figure out how to label people effectively in the past that doesn't feel like it does harm in the present. But also being specific, right? Like as you say, like there's lots of different mixed race peoples in the Americas, but you're speaking specifically about ones that are coming kind of from this fur trade world of indigenous and European uh, intermarriage, right? Not just not other, uh, you know, examples of intermarriage. But yeah, but you don't want to use pejorative terms or. Um, but I, I like this what you say though about descent, 
being a more flexible term. It could refer to, yeah, not just blood, but um, culture, uh, language, all kinds of other things that filter down through family lines. So maybe this will be the term that sticks. Well, yeah, we'll see. We'll see. I, As I was giving talks about the research in the last few years, I kind of test drive these names. And it was just, it was very interesting to see which kinds of audiences really reacted to different kinds of language. Uh, with your last book and this one, you do a lot of family history, a history of families. And uh, I, I find it really powerful, especially as you're tracing stories over, you know, over 200 years in some cases. I mean, every time I thought we were done with the Johnstons, like, oh, they're back. You know, you, you, <laughs> you trace some of these families like across geographies and across centuries. Um, but as historians, we really like to periodize things, right? Like this is the fur trade era. And then we have the, you know, like the Civil War era. We like to have these nice, neat divisions. But your use of uh, family stories, uh, drawing connections through those periods, um, I find that really compelling. Is what 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 else do you think we get out of out of that? How does that help us to not inappropriately cordon off moments in history as being their own thing, and instead saying, "Oh, this, this there's multiple continuums running through these." Well, if 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 you look at things at the family level, one of the things that you notice is some of these things that we think are enormously important to Canadian history or U.S. history or the history of Mexico turn out to not even show up in people's lives because it takes a long time either for those things to become important or they really weren't important. So I think it does downplay um some kinds of political history that, you know, maybe gets, you know, too much weight. I also think the key thing is it, it keeps it at an intimate level. So, you know, whatever is happening, you have to look at it, it through the eyes of these particular people. Are there any specific moments that, you know, jump out to you where using families and these intimate on the ground stories helps us combat some of the ways in which periodization has you know, distorted the narratives that we tell because we're trying to, well, this has to fit into the reconstruction narrative. So we, we twist and we bend things to fit. Can you think of a, a good example of one of these families that helps us draw lines across those periods and, and disrupt those narratives a bit or tell a, a different story? Well, if you, look, if you look at sort of the basics of 19th century expansion, so if you, you know, talked about the Louisiana Purchase, uh, the Mexican War, um, various, you know, upsets around getting chunks of land. Again, if you look at these families, this is in a way invisible to them because, and so the, 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 I think the best example of this probably is the Bent family that ends up in Southern Colorado, and then in Oklahoma. So they're out there long before any of these things happen. So the chunk of land where they are, which is Southern Colorado, is Mexico. Then it becomes the Republic of Mexico. Um, then it becomes you know, various territories that are part of, and, and, the, and the Bens don't care. They're trading bison. They're, they do make a lot of money supporting the U.S. Army. So they take advantage of sort of whoever comes along. But that's this family partnership between the Southern Cheyenne Nation and this group of St. Louis traders. And, you know, things come and go for them. Well, that's a good reminder, yeah, that on the ground, when it you know, transitions from being Mexico to being a U.S. territory to Colorado territory or, you know, whatever, like things on the ground don't automatically take they change, right? There, there's more continuity on the ground. I think, you know, I got, I got so interested in how intermarriage worked and making this argument about how essential it was to business, culture, et cetera. And then the sort of the big question is, okay, if it worked for everybody, if it works for the 
people who are colonizing and it works for big business and it works for indigenous people, why does it disappear? The story of intermarriage, there's been, you know, innumerable books that have, this has been a popular topic for a long time, but something your book does really powerfully is traces out these moments of transition where these intermarriage systems and all of the people, you know, these mixed descent people and the generations and generations of them afterwards, how they have a number of uncomfortable transitions they have to go through. So you already mentioned this early era where intermarriage is necessary to the fur trade. It's encouraged, say, by French officials or, you know, uh, some of these large company owners. But um, I was surprised that as early as um, 1805, you note, um, the Northwest Company is already establishing rules against marrying Native women, which is much earlier than I had it kind of in my head. But at the same moment, they allowed for their fur traders to marry mixed descent women. So what what does this mean? What is going well, on that, here? That's the the... This is, you know, the next era in the fur trade. So we have several generations of European men marrying indigenous women from various tribal nations. And now they have all these children who are mixed race. So if you're a fur trade, you know, set of parents, you really want your daughter to marry up. And that would be to a white fur trader. So negotiating that is, you know, just part of how we're going to remake the system in Canada and the Great Lakes area. Like I see where that might be advantageous to the, yeah, to a family trying to marry their daughters out. But from the company's point of view, why is the company banning their fur traders from marrying, you know, so supposed, you know, full breed Indians uh, but allowing the continued intermarriage with existing mixed race populations. Well, I think as as Canada and the United States become sort of 19th century nations, they're worried about this mixed race population. How are we going to manage it? How will property work? How will uh, Native women and mixed race women often, th- these are often matrilineal property arrangements and what's going to happen to the fur white fur trader dad or sons if property is handed down through women so it the the system that has worked for a long time all of a sudden has some kinks in it and there's a lot of distrust uh specifically once this kind of becomes an american or a story of american empire this need to use mixed uh, descent peoples turns to a lot of distrust of them what are some of the concerns that American officials have? Uh, why are they, why, why do mixed descent people seem to have unclear loyalties or goals or um, what makes them so suspect? Well, this, because they they literally are translators. They can speak many languages. They can move back and forth between worlds. Um, increasingly, so, so, you know, two things are happening in the 19th century. One is they're the fur trade is still growing. So there's an enormous population of mixed race people. They're you know, doing all kinds of work and all kinds of border areas. And these shifting notions of race, you know, we need to figure out who's what. So there's, you know, racial science that's, you know, coming out of, you know, the best 19th century thinkers about what race is and how we, you know, do tests for who's who. So, and it's not just, you know, who, who's, who's, who's black, who's white, who's, you know, Hispanic. Um, It's all, you know, who's, who's native and what does that mean? So all of these people who've crossed racial lines cause trouble. But we're dependent on them. Right. Well, I mean, the other thing about that Hudson, the the, um, Northwest company law that you pointed out that that is because everyone did it. The 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 trouble that the, the Northwest companies losing profits because they're having to support all of these families in the forts. And they're like, this is just costing too much money. But every single partner in the business had done that. So, you know, sometimes you pass laws because you can't control a situation. So, you know, I'm not sure that this made any difference at all. But they're they're just it, but that's 
it probably didn't stop practice, but it it was a little indicator that things were changing. Speaking of uh, the Northwest Company, Hudson's Bay Company, the American Fur Company, the uh, what's what's Astor's is the Pacific Fur Company, John Jacob yeah, Astor's. Yeah. Um, how do some of these different families factor into the not just international contest over resources, but this is now um, yeah, between corporate corporations? Um, um, how do these mixed descent families navigate that? Or what role do they play in these contests? Again, they're really at the center of this because almost all of the big Hudson's Bay Company or Northwest Company forts are, are staffed by a white fur trader, his native wife, and their children. So, and this this gives any company an enormous advantage because they can speak local languages, they can, they understand how to do diplomacy properly, how to, you know, invite guests in. So they, they know how to do all those things that'll make local native people be willing to trade furs with them. So it's, a, it's still essential to the business practice as there's a lot of competition for the fur trade. So, you know, getting forts in f- more places that are far and farther from either New York, Montreal, um, you know, these are thousands of miles away from corporate headquarters. So you have to have someone you trust up there. But then at what point do companies stop trusting the descendants of the descendants of these, you know, that original setup of a white fur trader, his native wife, and their mixed descent children? Uh, after a few generations, they're all mixed descent um, at some and point. That's, and that's really who is running the fur trade. What, what makes people uncomfortable is could a mixed descent man be the head chief? like the the boss of the you know the the bourgeois or the chief factor or you know whatever and no is the answer but the the system where a white european person comes in sometimes he brings his you know scottish wife or his french canadian wife but then he has relationships with women with local tribes and that that goes on, you know, well into the 19th century. Um, and often having multiple wives at the same time. They yeah. Often yeah. marry into the, um, you know, uh, polygynous uh, traditions. Um, but there's some real gendered dynamics here then, right? Between who's, what genders are allowed to marry in which directions across these racial divides. Um, how does that play out? Or how does that create difficulties, say, for, say, for like the, the male descendants? Um, of in some of these mixed scent families, fur trade sons. So we could we could look at the Johnson family, and this is one of the families that's you know housed in the Great Lakes. They pretty much work for the Northwest Company that transitions into being the Hudson's Bay Company. But this is a classic Irish fur trader who immigrates over and he marries into a very well-connected Ojibwa family that's, you know, been in the, you know, Sault Ste. Marie, sort of eastern edge of um, Lake Superior for generations and being involved in the fur trade. So they have traded with French fur traders. Now they're beginning to trade with English fur traders. So John Johnson arrives and he does what everyone else has done. They have eight children and the daughters do okay. They, um, and they're very clearly mixed descent. They have Ojibwa names, they're part of clans, they do clan business, but they're also Irish Canadians. Um, the sons get sent to boarding school in Montreal. So, you know, there's, there, you know, this mixed descent, I think, is really the right term for them. But for daughters, because John Johnson has wealth and power, they're attractive matches. Um, so, one daughter marries a 
um, service guy who worked for the Indian service, Henry Schoolcraft, who becomes <laughs> famous for other reasons. But at the time, he's, you know, like a, you know, 25 year old guy without, you know, uh, much to offer. And other daughters marry local fur traders or um, in one daughter's case, a, a Church of England missionary. So, you know, they all marry white men, but they all kind of stay in the region. And the sons, the sons can't do that. They either marry other mixed descent women or full native women. They're not, they're not marrying very many white women. They occasionally do for, you know, sort of idiosyncratic reasons. So that happens. But what they can't do is get into the business. So they can't become, um, they can't move up the ladder in the Northwest Company or the Hudson's Bay Company. So they end up, you know, being, doing other kinds of jobs, you know, working for John Johnston or trying to set up their own businesses. And they really don't do well in this world. Maybe that's why, I mean, there's a few individuals that they pop up all over the West, like the same person, um, which maybe speaks to how some of these, you know, young men are, they're bouncing all over the place, um, trying to find a place where they can make it work. I mean, some, sometimes when I took a big step back and thought about that, all young men were doing that. So if it's, you know, the 1820s and we've just had the giant crash of, you know, 1819 or you know, there's there's all this economic upset there's a lot of movement that everybody is making um but i think that it's it is slightly more complicated for these young men but not yeah it's not anomalous we have lots of stories of young men running all over the west you know, yeah <laughs> that's that's pretty familiar. um i'm glad you brought up henry schoolcraft because he and his family uh, so he marries this woman, Jane Johnston. Um, and what ends up happening with them and their family and their children uh, uh, maybe serves as some kind of microcosm as, you know, of broader things. So as you note, he married a, a very prominent mixed descent woman with lots of connections. But um, uh, eventually he ends up uh, promoting policies to ban the very kind of marriage that he had entered into. Um, um, talk to us about what happens um, when Jane dies and Henry Schoolcraft is left with these two mixed, is it two mixed descent children, I think? Yeah. Yep. Janie and Johnston. Um, yep. And he, he re remarries a white woman. And so what is this next generation and their experience and how Henry is dealing with them? What does that speak to in terms of the kind of like broader, broader trends? So, so, I mean, one way to look at this is this This is a very typical story. So young men with a certain amount of privilege and education come and make their fortune in fur trade country. And it's, it's not just that they're going to have like a quick little adventure and love them and leave them, but they do see it as sort of a first start. So many men in the fur trade um, have a native wife. And then they leave the native wife and they go back to Montreal or Scotland or London or New York or wherever. And then they have other wives who are generally white. In the schoolcraft's case, it's just, it's more complicated because, eh, not really, just because Henry's more famous. So he, you know, starts off as this like sub sub agent who has the, you know, absolute starting job in this very isolated place on the you know upper peninsula of Michigan. And he'd had several failures in life and he'd, he'd managed to get this government appointment and he felt pretty lucky, but he's very young. Um, I, I, I guess he, he falls in love with the whole situation. So he, he moves into John Johnson's house and he marries his daughter. And again, this is super typical. Um, they have two children and they end up moving to New York and Washington, D.C. so that Henry can pick up his literary career. Um, one, and again, the details are important here. One of the things that, that Henry did 
for the Johnston family was invest in really risky Detroit real estate. So when he leaves Michigan, they are really mad at him because he'd taken the family fortune and invested in something that didn't pan out at all. Um, so he's a little bit on the outs with the family. So when Jane dies, um, Henry decides he's just going to take another path. And he pretty much, um, he marries a white woman who owns a um, large Southern plantation. And that's the world that she comes from. And they, they talk a lot about how she's going to deal with Henry's mixed race children in their letters. You know, what do they look like? Will I be embarrassed by them? Will their true nature show out? So there's all this discussion about all this. Um, and it's, it's not a very happy situation. So yeah, how does Henry respond? And then how does, how does he end up treating these mixed race, these mixed descent children that he has? He, he, he's, Part of, part of his MO in moving back to Washington, D.C. is to get money from the federal government to publish this giant compendium of the history of Native people. So this is going to be this giant government book about all Indian people in the United States. And he works on this for years, and his children help him. But the point is to capture all this information so that nobody feels bad when white people in white America wipe out Native Americans. So it's a, it's a it's a funky moment for the schoolcraft family. Is this indicative of other uh, fur trade, uh, white fur traders who, I don't want to say they like later betray their, you know, these Native families that they've married into, but in, in, in some way kind of turn away from them or distance themselves from them in later years? I mean, lots, lots of fur traders. Um, and now because of the way I wrote about this, I didn't track any of those people because they, there aren't really any records about that. So if you, if you have marriages or intimate relationships with Native women. Lots of people did this. And it doesn't show up on the record anywhere. So this happened all the time. So you, you're you a trader, you work in a fort, you have this intimate relationship, and then you go back to Montreal or wherever. So they and, fall out of the story you're telling at that point. Yeah, yeah. But then their, their children are left in sometimes pretty horrible situations, you know, trying to put, put ourselves in the shoes of Janie and Johnston with the new evil stepmother in a way um, who's suspicious of them in the most um, kind of horrible of ways that at their very, yeah, is their true nature going to come out? Oh man. Imagine that. I mean, she, she is, she is, she is certain about um, their, you know, racial taint because that's, and that's the word she uses. And that, that language definitely is bubbling up by the time, so this is in the 1850s, when this is unfolding in the Schoolcraft family, and that racial language is out there, and it gets it gets heightened with the Civil War. Well, let's, I mean, we can, this is jumping quite a few chapters in your book, um, uh, but let's move to the Civil War again. Again, one of these these periods that historians like to cordon off, you know, uh, but it does exert very unique uh, forces on some of these people um uh, you write um about uh let me see if i can find this quote oh yeah i'm talking about george bent there on the southern plains you write george bent began the war the civil war as a white man but ended it an indian so how does this contest between the north and the south a lot of which is playing out in the west as lots of recent scholarship is reminding us how does this kind of forced George Bent to go through this transformation, uh, kind of a, a racial transformation. Okay, so maybe I have to take a little tiny step back and talk about the 1850s, which is the run-up to the Civil War, but it's also this, the first powerful era of Indian War in the U.S. West. 
So many, one of the things that these mixed race families end up doing is they're serving as scouts in the Indian Wars. So you see a lot of that. So in the Pacific Northwest, where there's a, just a, you know, wave after wave of indigenous warfare, and it's, it's not totally clear who's going to win at this point. So there, you know, in by, you know, 1860, there's been, you know, several rounds of this. It's moved into the Southern Plains and the Central Plains. So that's been going on for 10 years. And there are forts in the West. There's angry people. The other thing, of course, that's happening are gold rushes. So there are forts, angry people, upset native people, and then they're gold rushers. So it's a complicated situation there, for sure. Um, and just as that's unfolding, the Civil War starts in 1861 in the East. So all of the troops that were in the West sort of just disappear. So all these people have moved out there. There's, you know, tension on the trails. How do we operate territorial governments? And then the troops disappear. So so Westerners feel really, really under threat. So George Bent, who is the, you know, middle son of this very famous family that lived on this central plains at Bent's Fort that's on um, the Arkansas River. And, you know, he grew up in this bison trading world, but he's from this very elite family. So he gets sent off to St. Louis in the late 1850s. And his father sends him off also because of all this war. And he's scared that his sons will join the wrong side and become dog soldiers, which are, you know, very important in Cheyenne culture. So again, these are you know mixed descent pe people, um, but William Bent decides to send his sons off so they won't do this. So they're in boarding school in St. Louis and the war starts. So George looks around and decides he's with his white Bent cousins, he joins the Confederacy. So he goes off to be a Confederate soldier and you know, as these things unfold, he eventually gets captured. He, he may have deserted, but he ends up back in prison in St. Louis. And he, luckily, um, his, his father and brother find out that he's in prison there. And he moves back to Colorado and he, he, he signs that he won't ever, you know, fight against the U.S. Army ever again. But things in Colorado are rough. This is, we're going to have the Sand Creek Massacre. We're going to have all of those, you know, things that unfold there. So, you know, George is part of that group of Native people who decide, oh, you know, there's no hope here. Our only choice is to fight. There have been several times that reservations have been set up for native people. There have been special, there's a half breed reservation that's set up in Southern Colorado for, you know, the children of fur traders. So everyone's thinking about this, but it, it, it all disappears. There's just no possibility that there's going to be um, any land or resources for indigenous Coloradans. So George and his brothers, join up with the Cheyennes, Arapahoes, and Lakotas, and they go to war against the U.S. government. Um, that's a rough mm -hmm. patch. And there's no possible way, after making that choice, that George is going to be anything but an Indian. And he eventually gets removed with his entire family to Oklahoma. So he first goes to war with the Union as a white man, in a way. And later goes to the war with the Union uh, as an as an Indian. Yeah, but, he, but he's then he's then cemented in that identity or that role. Um, I hate to skip over the Reconstruction era because I think it's skipped over way too often. But um, <laughs> I wanted to before we run out of time, I want to talk about this these late moments which you kind of 
wrap up the book with of the allotment era in the 1880s and 90s, this big, you know, all kinds of government programs about assimilation and, you know, how do we solve the Indian problem, reservations, uh, educate their children, you know, uh, try to move them away from their culture, and then uh, allot them individual land ownership um, off the reservations, and then, of course, selling off all the surplus to white settlers, um, which is a related story. But how, so now we get to this era, uh, individual lots are going to be allotted to Native families. Uh, but on a lot of these places, these are mixed descent families. So how does, uh, and you talk about blood quantum, this new measurement, how does one's mixed descent complicate how things unfold on reservations uh, during the allotment era? Um, so I live in Oklahoma. <laughs> so, so, you know, discussion about blood quantum, allotment, trial membership. So it's just in the air in a different way. So trying to figure out a, a way to tell the story of allotment and again, anchoring it to specific people. So, you know, what, what happens to specific tribal nations? So the well, you know, one of the examples, because I was following the Bent family, so, you know, what happens to them when they get allotted? And, you know, again, George, George has four Native wives, and he marries two Southern Cheyenne women, um, a Northern Cheyenne woman, and I think, I'm pretty sure, a you so he's sort of all over the place. Um, and he's he's trying to protect his family in, in a large sense with these marriages. So this is a very traditional thing for an indigenous man to do. Um, and it's it sort of, it, and it, it works pretty well until allotment comes along. So mixed and mixed race people, did pretty well in Indian territory, in an Indian country in general. They get into the cattle industry quicker because they can make relationships with white traders, with white cattle rustlers. So they use tribal lands to raise cattle. So there's some money in all that. But when allotment comes along, everyone's going to get the same 80 acres. So whether you have a large cattle herd, um, so the, the idea is what we need to do about native people is just get rid of the reservations and stop having tribes. So if we can, and this is you know US government policy, we need to break up the tribes. So you know, Theodore Roosevelt, who's kind of surveying this at the end of the 19th century, talks about using a fist and hammer to smash the tribal mass, as he calls it. So this, this notion, and this comes out of, you know, very progressive people who were, these are groups that are called Friends of the Indians, who've done research on Indian people. So this is one of these, you know, late 19th century moments that's complicated. But allotment seems like an, a good idea for several reasons. You'll Native families will have clear access to land. So there won't be shared land. Everyone will have their own individual plot. But the only way to figure this out is who deserves to be allotted. So this is one of these moments where you have to figure out really, really who's Indigenous, who's Southern Cheyenne, how Southern Cheyenne are there. So this, this, completely racist, made up in the 19th century definition emerges at this moment. So we need to determine people's blood quantum, which means, you know, kind of in Latin, how much Indian blood does someone have? So in this process in the 1880s and 1890s, officials come onto Indian reservations and they allot people. And they also write down their racial heritage. And sometimes they ask people, sometimes they don't. So this is this is not exactly exact science in any way, shape, or form. 
And the way this comes down to us now is these are often referred to as the Dawes rules. So Henry Dawes was the, you know, Massachusetts senator, you know, great Republican reformer. Um, he, you know, really believed in, he was, he thought he was supporting Native people by doing this. Um, but so in honor of Henry Dawes, these, these roles, so these big ledgers that people sign on to that have all this information about them. So, you know, what their racial blood quantum is, and it's very inexact. So you can have in the, in the Bent family, so the Bent family shows up, there's George, and his second wife, and they show up with their six kids, and they're all labeled differently. So George is a, is half, but then one of his sons is three quarters, and another one is a quarter. So I don't think that's so, how math works. <laughs> no, no, no. So so it's just whoever is looking at these children is making these judgments. So if and many many families looked at this and thought. Boy, every time I sign anything with the U.S. government, nothing good comes of it. So people went and hid. So many, many people who are are not on the Dawes rolls, who are indigenous. So, you know, this is a, a mess that continues into the present. Well, and we're seeing lots of reverberations of that in the present, right? With lots of un, you know, lots of unrecognized indigenous groups, lots yeah. of these controversies of public figures who've claimed indigenous heritage and then the genealogy doesn't seem to add up. And sometimes the explanation is, you know, well, in a certain generation, my indigenous ancestors hid and tried to pass as white, you know, for various reasons. But so this is a, these are ongoing, ongoing stories. Um, this reminds me also, it's not the first time that, you know, the government tried to divide up who was native enough or not. Um, I did doing some work up uh, with like with the little shell uh, Chippewas and Turtle Mountain and Pembina. And when the governor was up there trying to sign treaties, a, a lot of the discussion <laughs> of consternation amongst the government officials uh, was trying to figure out, well, who are the real Chippewas? Because there's all of these Métis mixed descent peoples uh, around as well. And uh, at least the way I read the records, they pretty aggressively tried to divide that out and use that as a way to include less people in the treaty explicitly. And and you see that, you know, kind of all over the Great Lakes area that indigenous groups had very consciously brought in those mixed descent children into tribal nations and thought of them as, you know, full members. So, you know, figuring out you know, who's who in that situation is complicated. But at certain moments, the government did provide, like you mentioned, there's a, they call it the half-breed tract in Southern Colorado. Um, when I lived in Nebraska, I ran across the Nemaha um, half-breed tract um, south on the, in the southeast corner of the state, um, lands that were set aside specifically for these people. Um, what What happens there and how do those, how and why do those not end up as permanent mixed descent um, kind of reservation style uh, regions. So there, that starts pretty much as soon as treaties start. But I, the first one I could find was about 1802. But there's something like in the range of 40 of these things. If you sort of look at all the treaties that are made, and some of them never got approved. But, but so it's a common, because it comes out of the fur trade. So at this moment, when there's going to be a treaty signed and land divvied up, fur trade families say, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. You know, we need to be made part of this. You've built so, this whole empire on us. So you can't write yep. us out of the deal now. That's right. So sometimes they're called half-breed tracks. Some call it, they're called mixed blood reserves. They're, they're you know, a bunch of terms for these things. But they're they're all over a fur trade company country and they're very common um when i started looking into this initially i was looking at the nimaha one which is and you know one of the the, the drips family this kind of the midwest family that i tracked through ends up having access to that land um in the late 1850s and in the early 1860s 
and they they go up there and they you know attempt to settle on it and again it's one of those moments where okay it's the civil war so there are all these you know confederate raiders running all over the so it's it's you know so they abandoned kansas city and they head up to the nimaha um half-breed reservation so you know trying to figure out a better future for their children or just to protect them from what's going on in the civil war. And initially I thought, oh, here it is again. It's just going to be white people stealing land from native people. But in the case of this family, they're actually pretty smart about it. So these mixed blood women, they're both half Oto who, you know, come from this long fur trade family. They're married initially to mixed race men and then to white men, um, they realize that if they try to hang on to it themselves, it's not going to play out that well, or their children will get cheated out of it. So they sell that land to their white husbands. And they turn and who then end up being, you know, farmers on the Oto reservation. So they figure out some ways to in keeping it in the family to protect that land. So that surprised me. Yeah. Well, I I've long thought that someone I think I I can't remember who I talked to someone at the Western History Association once that may be doing a project, but a whole project about these mixed descent, yeah, mixed race reserves, half breed tracks. Because they there he is. It's a guy named Jimmy Sweet. Oh, no, that is who I talked to. Okay. Yeah, and it's about to come out. Okay. Well, <laughs> we're we're waiting, Jimmy, if you're if you're listening. But there, it just it seemed like uh it was you know, be, because these were things that didn't end up lasting, um, they've kind of been written out of a lot of the narratives. We just forget that they were there and they were important in the moment. Um which I think is maybe a, kind of a big takeaway I took from your book overall that in some ways uh, mixed descent peoples have been written out of, I guess, the centrality of their role in the um, Euro-American settlement of the West. Um, they weren't written out of the narrative because you see mentions of them, but the, the real outsized and central role they played, I think, is has been has been downplayed. So your book is a nice corrective for that. There's, uh, I mean, it's still in the landscape. So there, there are, you know, half-breed road, uh, you know, all half breeze lake. Yeah, it's out everywhere. Yeah. Yep, yep. Well, we probably should wrap up. Do you want to um, give us a a glimpse into what it is you're working on next? I mean, you're sitting there in the Huntington this uh, semester working on something. That's that's right. Um, you know, as I was, this always happens. As I was doing the re research for Born of Lakes and Plains, I kept thinking about okay. I'm telling this, it's, it's not a happy story because in a, in a way it's like an elegy to this, you know, thing that really worked for a long time and then it disappeared. And, you know, so, but it was, you know, holding up, you know, a world that I think worked for a lot of people. But on the other side of that really is a lot of violence. So, you know, thinking through, and I mentioned, why there's so much captivity, um, what it is about North American culture, U.S. culture that's willing to kill Indian people in such big numbers. So I'm, I'm thinking about how Indian wars starting in the 16th and 17th century spin up ideas about race and culture that get pretty embedded by the time the U.S. nation comes along. So this is, this is a little grim. <laughs> and but, but as are... a way to explain why sometimes Americans don't really bat an eye at the concept yeah. of violence against Native peoples. Yeah, yeah. And it's it's there are moments where I think this is a terrible idea. But when I started especially digging into military records, there are people who won't do it. There are not that many of them, but there are, and commanders are really mad that, you know, this troop wouldn't go off in the American Revolution and do X, Y, and Z that involved, you know, raising an Indian village. 
So, and people desert rather than do it. So there's, there's sort of another story embedded in there too. But the, the people I'm tracking right now are rangers and they start in, you know, colonial New England villages and towns go in and pay for groups of rangers to go off and deal with their Indian problem. And, you know, you can see that circling down pretty close to the present. Wow. That is a little grim. I know. Um, but, you know, sometimes these are the these are the topics that we, we end up with. Uh, well, congrats on this book. It is, it's really beautifully written. You cover uh, unbelievable, you know, stretch of time and a continental geography. Uh, but um, I was continually shocked by, you know, sometimes these real macro level, huge studies lack uh, kind of the humanity, the people the intimacy. And since you've grounded it in families, that's kind of baked into it. So for such a large continental history, it was much more personal. Um, there was a lot more humanity in it. I really appreciated that. So thank, thank you. you. And, and congrats. I enjoyed writing it and I enjoyed meeting these people and figuring out how to keep the story, you know, structuring it was a challenge, but it was, it was a real privilege for me too, to, you know, get to do this. Well, thanks so much. And thanks for spending an hour with us uh, this morning. I appreciate it. Thank you too. All right. Take care. Ann. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you'll subscribe and listen every month. Please leave us a review on whatever app or platform you're listening through, or follow us on Facebook at Writing Westward Podcast, or on Twitter at Writing West, where you can get updates and leave comments. Writing Westward is a production of the Charles Rudd Center for Western Studies at Brigham Young University. We're an interdisciplinary research center that supports academic research and the promotion of public understandings about the North American West. We host regular public lectures, which we live stream, have an annual funding cycle with award, grant, and fellowship categories that nearly anyone researching or working on the region from any disciplinary approach or towards any final product can apply. Learn more at redcenter.byu.edu. That's R-E-D-D -D Center. Our theme music was provided by local Utah composer Micah Dahl Anderson. Find him at Micah, D-A-H-L, Dahl, Anderson, with an O, dot com. I'll put a link in the episode description. My name is Brendan Rensink. I serve as the podcast host, producer, and just about everything else. So you can direct any praise or critique my way. I'm author and editor of a number of books on the West, borderlands, native peoples, genocide studies, religion, and the environment. Recently, my book, Native But Foreign, Indigenous Immigrants and Refugees in the North American Borderlands, published by Texas A&M University Press in 2018, won the Best Historical Nonfiction Book Award from the Western Writers of America. In an anthology I co-edited with P. Jane Hafen, entitled Essays on American Indian and Mormon History, published by the University of Utah Press in 2019, won the Metcalf Best Anthology Book Prize from the John Whitmer Historical Association. Here at the Red Center, I'm also general editor and project manager of a great digital history, uh, public history project named Intermountain Histories. It's a free mobile app and website, uh, intermountainhistories.org, that curates student-researched and written micro-histories of the region, complete with archival photos, bibliographies, and more. To contact me about the podcast, my own research, or anything else, head to bwrensink, that's R-E-N-S-I-N-K, org or follow me on Twitter at Brendan W. Rensink. Until next month, be well, be curious, and be kind. Cheers.